0: I want you to keep your place in 2 Corinthians 5, but I also want you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, because I want you to see something that Jesus said that is connected to what we're going to talk about this morning. So John, chapter 14. You ever been watching a movie, maybe one that you downloaded from the internet or something, and the the sound and the picture aren't in sync. You know what I'm saying? So like their lips are moving, but then the words come like a second or two later. And it can be so annoying, especially if it's a really good movie. You're watching this movie and you're going, this would be enjoyable if it was in sync. But because it's not in sync, you, it's hard to kind of keep track or concentrate on what's really there. And, and I kind of imagine that's, that's the experience of the disciples when they were walking with Jesus. They saw Jesus And in Jesus, they saw the glory of God, they saw the Messiah, God's chosen king, God become flesh. They saw the glory of God, yet because they're in this world, things weren't always in sync. And so they were kind of, I sort of get what you're saying, I heard the words, but your lips were moving and something else seemed to kind of go into my ears. And there was like this difficulty of seeing what was going on. And this was especially true when Jesus was re- making, giving them new revelation underst- or explaining to them uh, parts of God's plan that they didn't know before, like the fact that he was going to have to die. He, he started talking, we see this in the Gospels where Jesus would say, it's necessary that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be you know, delivered unto the hand of sinners and beaten and crucified and then to rise again the third day. And they would sort of hear that kind of going, I, how does that work with what we'd known in the Old Testament, and I, I don't get it. And it was not in sync for them. And so when Jesus is really making this point clear to them and letting them know this is going to happen really in the next day and at the end of chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, He says, look, I'm going away. I'm going away, I'm going to be leaving. And of course, they're they're sad about this. They love Jesus. They see in him, this is as good as it's going to get. I mean, our only hope they saw, and rightly so, was that this guy rules the world. If this guy rules the world, then there's real hope. So when he says, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't go with me now, they're like, what? How can this be? And so listen, Jesus says to them in John chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, literally dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know And the way you know. Really comforting words, but Thomas still, things aren't in sync for him. So Thomas says in verse 5, says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how can we possibly know the way? It's good. It's good to be blunt that way with Jesus, isn't it? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) So Jesus says to them plainly, listen, he says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, going back to 2 Corinthians, I want to bring this out because if, as we saw last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul uses the reality that Jesus is risen, that the preparation he did to, to make that place for us was not, you know, we, we, I've heard lots of, of, of preachers say, okay, God took six days to make the world and Jesus has been taking 2,000 years to make our new dwelling place, how amazing it's going to be, and and I guarantee it's going to be amazing, but let's not forget God can say, boom, and it's done, you know. He doesn't need 2,000 years to make something glorious. But also there's this reality that the preparation that Jesus was, was doing, he's, or he's referring to in John chapter 14, was his death and resurrection on the cross, how that prepares us, a place for us before God. And, and, and we see that Paul picks up on this in chapter 4, verse 14, when he's talking about why he endures so much suffering as a a sent one of God, as an apostle. He says, knowing, listen, that God raised up the Lord Jesus, uh, that the God who raised up the Lord Jesus, he who raised up the Lord Jesus, will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. And so Paul says, yeah, I'm going through a lot of stuff. I, as we said last week, he says, I'm just this jar of clay, but that's so that the treasure of Jesus can shine forth. And the truth is, guess what? Because Jesus was risen from the dead, because he rose from the dead, I'm going to be risen from the dead. You're going to be risen from the dead, and we're going to be in glory together. As as much of historical reality is that Jesus is alive today, that he rose from the dead, as he said he is, that same kind of historical reality is heaven. That there's going to be this time, soon and very soon I think, when we're actually going to be in glory. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to know as we are known. That is reality. That is fact. That's the way the Bible deals with it. And so Paul here in chapter 5 kind of wants to unpack this some more. And I love the fact that he starts off in verse 1 by saying, This we know. He's not saying, well, we're kind of guessing. Here's my speculation on the subject. He says, This we know. How does he know these things? Because Jesus is alive. He says, This we know. Now what I want to do today is in these first 11 verses, I kind of want to ask three important questions about the reality of heaven. I'm going to ask these three big questions, these three important questions, and get the answers from the text that we have here. So the first question I want to ask is, what can we know because of the reality of heaven? What does it teach us? What can we know? Well, look at verse 1. Paul says, This we know, that if our earthly house, this tent, he's speaking of his body now, this tent of his body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. Now notice Paul's talking about we as in persons, as in believers. And he, and he speaks of we as being those who have this tent. Oftentimes what we do is we tend to look at ourselves as bodies that have souls, right? So that's why we're usually more concerned about how we look than what our character is like. Because we tend to look at ourselves as bodies that have souls. Well, the spiritual part's more important, but how do I look today? You know, how's my hair? <laughs> yes, you can laugh at that. It's okay. In fact, we're so consumed with the physical nature of ourselves that we all do this. We, 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 someone says, oh, I, I tagged you in a photo of, of, of the group of us. And so what do you do? You see the photo. Who's the first person you look for? Yourself. How do I look? Oh, I have a dodgy smile. doesn't matter if everybody else in the photo looks brilliant. If you have a dodgy smile, you don't like the photo. Because we see ourselves as physical. And what Paul's saying here, listen, this teaches us something. Listen, it teaches us that we're not just the physical. Because he says, look, we have a tent, and nobody purposes to live in a tent permanently. Some poor souls have that. But nobody purposes to do that, really. He says, we are in this tent. We exist with this tent, this temporary body. But guess what? We're going to have a new building soon. So who we are is not just this body. It's more than that. We're more than just the physical. You guys remember the Old Testament story of Job? Job, the, the, the man who, who, whom God called a righteous man. God says to Satan, if you considered my servant Job, a righteous man. And then God allows Satan to test Job through some serious trials and as Job's being tested get to about chapter 19 and his friends are you know they're just thinking okay Job why don't you just admit that you're such a horrible person and that's why your life's so miserable if you would just kind of see the connection things would get better and Job he you know he knows he's not perfect but he also says you know this is i got nothing to confess I don't know why this is happening, but i got nothing to confess. But you get to chapter 19, and Job makes a good confession, not about his sin, but about his Savior. And Job says this, listen. He says, here's what I know, guys, to his friends who are trying to comfort him by telling him how bad he was. He says, here's what I know. I know that my Redeemer lives, and on, on he shall stand at last on the earth. He's going to make an appearance. And after, notice, after my skin is destroyed... This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. This is the the testimony of all Scripture, that these bodies are just tents, and we're going to exchange them, recycle them for something much better, you might say. We are more than just the physical. But here's what else we can know. Look at verse 2. Paul says, For in this we groan." Earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, that is our new body. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, we're not going to be disembodied souls. That's an important thing to understand, okay? For we know, verse 4, for, for I'm sorry, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. In other words, not because we think this material body is bad, but we want to be further clothed. Now, this is important. We also know that the bodies we're going to get are better than the bodies that we have now. And this is important. It's important because both in Paul's day when he wrote this, but also even today, there are people who have a mindset. Sometimes it's identified as part of the New Age movement. They have this mindset that the physical is less than the sort of spiritual, And that's actually not new at all. It's an old idea, and it's this idea that uh, a lot of it was kind of uh, made known or thought through by the the Greek philosophers. And it's this idea that there's this uh, supreme being, and from that supreme being emanated, kind of impersonally emanated lesser things. And so you had kind of like, you know, like... um, the sun in its glory if we were right next to the sun of course we just before we get any close to it we just we be consumed but we have we experience the emanation of the sun you know the rays of the sun and they're lesser and, and, and they, they can benefit us. And so it's kind of like, okay, there's this supreme being and what's emanated from him has been, okay, you know, divine beings and eventually the physical creation. And, and the farther you get away from the, the divine being in, a, in, a, in that sense, the worse things are. So the more physical something is, the worse things are, okay? So they looked at the physical as bad. The material world is bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches, The Bible teaches that when God made this world, he declared this world good. When God made humanity, he said very good. And the Bible teaches, listen, that the physical is good. You know why we know that the physical is good? Not just because God declared it in Genesis, but you know why we know the physical, your physical body is a good thing? Because God honored humanity by being clothed in human flesh in the person of Jesus. So the the material world isn't bad, it's just broken. And so here's the thing. The promise of the gospel is not this. The promise of the gospel is not God's going to fix the brokenness of the material world. No, that's not the gospel. The promise of the gospel is God's going to not just fix it. He's going to replace it with something better. And that includes our physical bodies. Now, I I think that includes our perspective as well. I mean, someone asked me very seriously. They did ask me. They said, "So, do you think, John, in all seriousness, when you uh, get your new body, that you know you're going to have hair?" They were serious. Are you going to have hair? Are you going to be, you know, the way you are now, or a fitter, John? It was a very pleasant conversation. But they were serious, they were serious. Like, what's our because we we have this perspective of, of what? Okay. It's what something looks like that's important. What makes us what makes our physical good is that God made it. What makes the new body better is that God's making it. <laughs> he's doing it. It's this new creation he's talking about. There's also this this, this mindset. he says, look, you know, that we that he's groaning for this. And, and this, this is important because, see, we value this creation, but we long for the new creation. Now, what's cool about that for, for us as believers means right now, even in this world that's broken, even though things are not what we want them to be, not what they should be, the reality is we can still enjoy good things in this world. We can. The Bible says God's given us richly all things to enjoy. And this is, I, get, I get annoyed sometimes when Christians will have a nice meal and just kind of go, oh, man, but people are starving everywhere and I, Oh, man, I shouldn't have eaten that. You're like, what? Why are you feeling guilty about good things that God's provided? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be willing to give up those good things to help people that have less, for sure. But what I'm trying to say is we should give thanks that God's given us all things richly to enjoy. Good things. The physical isn't bad. It's just it's just this physical is temporary. This creation is temporary. We're longing for a new creation. This is what we know by the fact that there's a resurrection, by the fact that there's heaven there's something better we're waiting for doesn't mean everything here is rubbish it just means think about the best things the things you enjoy most on this earth seriously think about it think about how how much we enjoy real relationships think about marital intimacy and how great that is it's really good when it's supposed to be when it's the way it's supposed to be it's great what is that it's a shadow of a real intimacy that we're going to have with God one day it's better than the physical Think about, seriously, think about how how much we like good food. What do we like good food for? Not just for the food itself, but because it's a chance, it it gives us a way to pleasurably celebrate something. That's why we have a big meal at holidays and such. Do you realize when the Bible describes the kingdom coming, the first thing we have is this marriage supper of the lamb, a feast? I'm thinking that food's going to be pretty good. And, And here's the thing as well. We, we know that, that there's, a, there's an aspect of, of a greater physicality or a greater new creation. And we know that, that there's, a, in a sense, um, a related, it's related to the physical, in the sense that there's a materialness to it. We know that because when Jesus rose from the dead, you remember when he makes an appearance and they're looking at him thinking, oh, no, oh, is this a ghost? And he goes, guys, guys, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a ghost. Okay, touch me. I'm not a ghost. Wait, wait. Give me a piece of fish. Watch, really? mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not a ghost. He ate food. So there's something about this new creation that is similar to this old creation, but it's even more glorious. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, kind of compares it to, you have a seed, and that seed is kind of small, and it's base, and it's almost crude looking, but when it goes into the ground and dies, what happens? The same DNA produces what? This beautiful, flowering, fruitful plant. It's kind of, we're gonna be buried But because we're in Christ, we're going to be resurrected into something more glorious. This is what we know. So, I'm not saying don't take care of this body now. Yes, do, okay? But don't get consumed with it. At best, you're going to, you know, have a better looking corpse, okay? Be consumed with something else. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. But we can know this. We can know, listen, we're more than just flesh and blood. We can know the bodies God's preparing for us are better than what they are now. But also, part of this is, is... is because something's better guess what until we get that we're going to be groaning did you notice that paul says we groan in verse 2 in verse 4 he says the same thing and uh, we who are in this tent groan now listen groaning is not complaining complaining is when we say i don't like what i have complaining is basically unthankfulness Groaning is not unthankfulness. Groaning is longing for something that belongs to you but it's not yours yet. Do you know what I'm saying? Groaning is two weeks from the wedding night. Oh, man. When's that going to happen? That's groaning. Groaning is smelling the roast dinner on a Sunday. Oh, when's it going to be done? It comes from thankfulness. It's a longing for something that you know belongs to you, that's waiting for you. That's groaning. Until we get to heaven, guess what we're going to be doing? Groaning. And it's not a bad thing. It's good that we're longing for these things. Check this out. Paul wrote this in, in Romans chapter 8, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I, I like the way it makes it kind of clear in its paraphrase. Listen to this. Paul writes, For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit in a second. For we long, notice, for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait uh, with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And notice then he says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, when we don't know what uh, God wants us to pray for, we don't know what God wants us to pray for always, but the Holy Spirit gives prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. A lot of groaning going on. (laughs) That's a good thing. It's great. That's what hope is. Hope is an expectation of something better. This is what we know because Jesus is alive and we're promised to be risen from the dead. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We know this. Something better awaits us. How many of us are looking for our ultimate now as a very well-selling Christian book says, you want your best life now? Rubbish. If this is our best life now, you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection, you know what he says? People should feel sorry for us as Christians if this is your best life now. It's not. Our best life is to come. We're longing for that day. And we know it's coming. And we expect it going. We're okay that we're not satisfied. I don't want to be satisfied with this world because I know God has something better. I don't want to be satisfied with this creation. You know why? Because there's a new creation that Christ has made available to me that he's purchased for me. Not only that, Listen. We know that we're more than just flesh and blood. We know that that we have something better coming. But also, you know what else we know? We know death is going to die. Look at this. What does he say at the end of verse 4? That mortality may be swallowed up by life. When I was in uh, third grade, that would be year four here. We had a a boa constrictor in our classroom, which is kind of creepy for little kids to have that, but they had that. And we got to feed the mice to the boa constrictor, even creepier. It's America. What are you going to (laughs) do? And the thing was, it was kind of freaky, kind of waiting for that thing. But what was really amazing was how this boa constrictor would unhitch its jaw and completely swallow this mouse whole. And you just see this lump in its belly. And he thought, you know there's a mouse there, but you can't see it anymore. It's been swallowed up. Now, the Bible says mortality or death or the, or the potential of death, mortality will be swallowed up by life. Check this out. Listen to this. Paul says this in that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter. Paul says, for this corruptible, that's our human bodies now, must put on incorruptible. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corrupt, corruptible has put on incorruption, and this uh, mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought the pass the same that was written. Listen, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades or hell, where is your victory? Taunting death. We have this glorious picture in the book of Revelation at the end. Revelation 21.4 where it says, And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. I think that's pretty awesome. I think it's pretty great that we can know that. Why do we know that? Because Jesus is alive. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The reality of heaven is real because he's really alive. So that's the first question. What can we know? And there's so much more we could get into, but we won't today. Here's the second question. You ready? How can we be confident we're going to experience the reality of heaven? I mean, it sounds brilliant, but how do I know I'm going to go there? I mean, seriously. It's kind of a big deal, right? Someone can describe to you the Taj Mahal, but, you know, they say, oh, you really got to go see it. Well, that'd be nice, but how do I know I'm going to get there? Who's going to provide for me to get there? Well, look at what he says, verse 5 of chapter 5. Paul writes, now he, that's God, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He starts off by saying, okay, look, this is how we can be confident. Here's the answer, the first answer to the question, because God's prepared it for us. Remember we just read in John 14, right? Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. The work of Jesus qualifies us for heaven. Now, I would love to get into this more, but I don't want to steal Adam's sermon for next week. (laughs) That's the rest of chapter five. But just know this. It's gonna be, if you are lacking confidence in this, okay, man, come next week. Get into it. Read it ahead of time even. Because it's Jesus, through his work, that's provided for us this confidence. But notice what he also says in verse five. He says, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, some of you might have a footnote in your Bible that says down payment or earnest. Now, when this uh, word was used, it, it, it sounds like, you know, we're getting a bank loan, okay, but it's, it's, it's more personal than that. The same word that's used here as a guarantee or a down payment or an earnest is also used basically as an engagement ring, the idea of an engagement ring at least. that So when a, when a man was wanting to be betrothed to a woman and he uh, his parents had made arrangements as they would have done in that day for the two to be married. What would happen is to show good faith that he was serious about being committed to this woman, he would give a down payment. And it was like a gauge ring. saying, I'm serious about this. And it was so serious in a Jewish culture that you had to get divorced to break off the engagement. Down payment. The Bible's teaching us, listen, that God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us, is our engagement ring. Guarantee that God wants to be married to us for eternity. Now, this is, a, this is a really amazing thing. Because what we have happening is, it's not the fact just that we have God's Spirit. So like, okay, how do I don't know I have God's Spirit? And okay, if I think I've had God's Spirit because I've had this experience or whatever the case might be. It's more than just this idea of, I had an experience with the Holy Spirit and that experience proves to me I'm gonna be in heaven someday. That's not what this means. What this means is this. When God saves us, when we realize that we need him to save us, we need him to make us right with him, you know what he does? What he does is not only does he say, I declare you innocent, but he comes and he dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian unless God's Spirit comes within you. And when God's Spirit comes to dwell in you, guess what he does? He begins to change you from the inside out. This is why the Bible talks about, I think it's in the book of Colossians that it says, it's Christ in, in you that's the hope of glory. What makes you expect that you're going to be with him forever? Because you know God is changing you. The spirit of God is changing you from the inside out. He's making you like Jesus. So that conviction you feel over sin, you, sometimes I know, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but sometimes as a Christian I thought, gosh, sometimes I do wish I didn't always feel so bad about my sin. But then other times I I think, no, no, thank you, God, that I feel bad about my sin. Because it's an indication that your spirit's in me. Thank you, God, that I have a longing for heaven because that's an indication that your spirit's in me. Thank you, God, that I want to be better than I am because that's that's an evidence that your spirit is is in me. Thank you, God, that I'm not what I used to be, that you've changed me. And that's an evidence that your spirit was in me. And what is that? A guarantee, a confidence that we're going to see him face to face. Paul goes on to say, verse 6, he says, So we are also confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Drop down to verse 8. We are confident, Paul says, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So we talked about this longing that we have for something greater. You know, that longing is part of our confidence you know, Paul said in the book of Philippians, he says, you know what, to live for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He was in prison when he wrote that. He, he thought it might have been the end. He thought he might have been executed. And he, was, he said, I'm, I'm kind of torn between this because if I stay, if I stay here and I don't get executed, it's going to be better for you people. And I love you people. That was his mindset. I love the Philippians, you know, I love the Philippian church. I want to stay here so I can help you grow in Christ. But you know what? I'd much rather be with Jesus. So for me to die is gain. Let me ask you something. Do you feel that way? I'm not just talking about, your life sucks, I want to get out of here. I mean, man, I really, really want to be with Jesus. You see, this is what the Holy Spirit produces in us, this longing. The more, here's the thing you can know, the more you see death as gain, the more you know your life is Christ. Yeah, I want to know him. But notice also he says in verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Now we talk about walk, it doesn't just mean to physically put one foot in front of the other. It means living everyday life. That's what your walk is. It's your manner of life, your everyday life. And so the idea here is this, okay? This is how we have a confidence. We have a confidence that we're going to see Him face to face, that we're going to experience the reality of heaven because our everyday life has been changed by that fact. When we know we're going to we're gonna live for eternity, we know that we're going to live eternally, that begins to change how we live. It does. It changes how you treat people. You, you think, you know what, I, I know that one of the, I remember when I had the kind of, you might say revelation or illumination of the fact that my wife Sarah wasn't my wife. She's the bride of Christ. And it really was a revelation because I thought, i got to start treating her better. I'm going to see her husband soon. And I know if, if, if anyone treated her bad, I'd be mad. We'd have words. And I realized she, I, I'm not just, she's not just married to me, she's married to the Lord. And I, that changed something. I thought, I'm going to be... In heaven, even the way we, we minister or, or relate to each other, I realize, you know what? We are husband and wife till death do us part, but we're brother and sister forever. It changes the way you relate to each other. I look at my kids who, who, who you know, uh, by the grace of God, we see evidence in their life that they know God and it's great to see. And I think, you know what? What's amazing is they're my kids and there's that parent-kid thing that goes on. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. It's a mixture of joy and guilt. <laughs> but there's also this, there's also this, like, that's, that's my brother, that's my sister for eternity. The reality of heaven changes the way you relate to people. It changes the way you spend your time. There's a, about a half a dozen or so people who went on the streets of Norwich yesterday from our church to tell people about Jesus. They probably felt like idiots on the way there and probably felt foolish the whole time they were doing it. I was supposed to get there, but my car broke down. I felt even more stupid. But there's a reality that, that these guys do that. Why? Because heaven's true. Heaven's real. It changes the way you spend money. It really does. You begin to think, you know, is, is it really important that I invest in this? I mean, one of the things Sarah's has always said to me over the years I'm the worrier in the family, in case you guys don't know that. And one of the things she's always said to me is, honey, don't forget, we don't take anything to heaven with us but people. So let's invest in them. And this is, this is the thing that I think Paul's getting at. He's saying, listen, here we, we walk by faith. And he's not talking about blind faith. When he says walk by faith, not by sight, he doesn't mean blind faith. What he means is, listen, Confidence in the unchanging character of God in the midst of constantly changing circumstances. Because we look at this life, we walk through this life, and we go, things are really good, and then tomorrow things are really bad. Relationships are what they're supposed to be, and then they're in the toilet. The weather, come on! Things change in this world constantly. You walk by sight, you're going to be depressed. But we don't walk by sight. Our life is not lived by sight, it's lived by faith. We trust the character of God. The unchanging character of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And that itself, listen, builds our confidence that yes, okay, Lord, we know that we're not just about flesh and blood. We know you have something better for us. We know death is going to die and that's all great news. Therefore, we're confident we're gonna experience you because you've provided through Jesus, your spirit dwells in us, and we're walking in light of eternity. We're, our, the way we live is even different. Jesus said this. He made a really clear, plain promise. Listen, John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, that us, passed from death to life. That's great news. This is how we have confidence. Because our God became a man, lived this way, made these promises, and just as he predicted, died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven because all those historical realities happened. We can be confident. We can trust his word. And even when our circumstances are all over the place, We walk by faith, not by sight. So here's the last question. All right, so we can know certain things because of the reality of heaven and we can have confidence that we're gonna experience the reality of heaven. So here's the last question. How should we live now in light of the reality of heaven? Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim. That could be translated, ambition, we think ambition is a dirty word, but it depends on what you're ambitious for. We make it our ambition, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. How should we live now in light of eternity? We should want to please him. God, I don't want to please you. Why, so I can get to heaven one day? No, because I know I'm going to be there. Huge difference. Religion is, you better please God, you better appease God, or you're not going to get to heaven. That's religion, that's not what we're about. The gospel is, Christ has appeased God for us. And God's now pleased with us, so we just want to please Him in return. That's how we respond. God, I just want to trust you because without faith it's impossible to please you. I just want to seek you because you promised to reward me. I just want to please, be pleasing. That's my ambition, that's my goal. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according notice to what he has done, whether good or bad. When we realize that heaven is real, that we're going to stand before God one day, you know what it reminds us of? Our actions matter. What we do matters. I mean, think about this for a second. If there is no God... Why do your actions matter? You might go, oh, well, because if you do good things, good things happen to you. Where's that written? Well, how do you know that? If there's no God. Oh, it's karma. Well, then that's a, a God you believe in. It's a false God, but it's a God you believe in. How, how can there be any meaning to any of your actions, good or bad, without there being God? Seriously, this is what it boils down to. If there's no God, if we are just material, if we are just random chance results of an evolutionary process, if that's all we are, then here's the point. Your love for your kids is nothing except to make sure they don't die so they can reproduce other kids. It has no meaning beyond that. It means all your efforts to help people mean nothing. And think about this. You know this as well. You know this for a fact, don't you? There's a lot of things that we attempt to do that we think these are good things, I want to do this, and they fail. I mean, is, isn't that the, the way it works? We try to help people and they don't want the help or we did, we did the wrong kind of help and we just push them away or whatever the case might be. We fail all the time. What kind of meaning does that give to your actions? No, what gives meaning to our actions is this. Listen, that we're going to face God one day and he's going to be the measure of our actions. He's going to say those were good and those were bad. Now, this is important. We can read this, especially when we get into the next verse and have this mindset, is he, okay, is he saying that we're going to get to heaven and then the issue here is that, okay, hopefully we've done enough good things and God's going to let us in. That is not at all what he's saying. As we mentioned last week, as we'll see much deeper next week, it's Christ and Christ alone who provides for our entrance into heaven, our right relationship with God. It's only what He's done that provides that. This is talking about rewards. Now, specifically when it says the judgment seat, he uses the word, the Greek word bima. And the bima seat, it can be used to just as someone who's making a decision about something, a judgment about something. But often where you see it in Greek literature is used in the sense of like the Olympic Games. So you have that person that's, that's sitting on the platform, he's judging the events, and then when the person who's ran the race, they all come forward and he puts a wreath on their head. First, second, third place kind of a thing. It's a place of reward. Everyone who runs the race, the Bible says, gets reward. did not work that way in the Olympics, but it works that way with Jesus. This is talking about rewards. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can look it up later where he talks about that there's a, where we're going to see God and our, our works, the things we've done, good or bad, are going to be tested by fire so that we will be saved But even if our works are destroyed. Now, here's why we know our actions matter. Because God is using our actions, listen, to prepare us for heaven. Now, this is where I'm going to get a little bit speculative because I don't know for sure how the whole reward in heaven thing works. I mean, some people say, you know, God doesn't want us to be motivated by reward. Well, the Apostle Paul was. He talked about it all the time. Jesus told us to be motivated by reward, so there's something to it. I don't know for sure what that reward is going to be. I know that everyone who's in the presence of God, their cup is full and running over. I know that. Bible talks about in the presence of God is fullness of joy. So no one's going to be in heaven going, "Who suck, We should try harder. You know, no one's going to be doing that, okay? But there is going to be, I believe, something to this, this idea that our capacity to enjoy the Lord is somehow connected to our willingness to walk with him now. I mean, I don't know how it works, and I definitely don't think we're going to get to heaven and going, I enjoy God way more than you. It's not going to work that way either. I don't think anyone's going to be aware of that kind of stuff. But there is something there that God says, because God said to, to Abraham, didn't he? God said to Abraham, Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your exceedingly great reward. And there's also this great picture in Revelation where they cast their rewards, their crowns, where? At Jesus' feet, If nothing else, God says, listen, here's how the works work. You do works as unto me. Your heart is to to say, God, I want to love you. I want to be obedient to you. I want to be pleasing to you because you've already saved me. And so when I get there and you say, here's your great reward, you go, God, it's not mine. It's yours because you did it all. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to, like, have one of those flimsy kind of Burger King paper crowns. Flutter, 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 flutter. I want to have, like, a, I got a shot put that sucker, like, whoa, oh, there you go, Lord. It's all you. You did this. Our works matter, our actions matter. They have eternal weight. Now, listen, and don't get confused either. Don't, don't think, I think, oh, okay, if I would just do more missionary, churchy stuff, that's what matters. It's everyday life. We walk by faith. Look, the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, with all do it with all your mights. In Ecclesiastes, the Bible says in the New Testament, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can pick up dog poop to the glory of God. And all the, all the young boys in the church say, oh, I can't amen that. It's true, though. If you say, Lord, this is a horrible job, I wish my dad would give it to somebody else. But I want to do it as unto you. There's a reward for it. It has to do with our heart towards God that we get rewarded for. Your actions matter. So the next time, moms, you're wiping the sunny nose for the millionth time in the first hour of the day, do it as unto the Lord. There's a reward in it for you. And dads, when you're playing Barbies with your girls and you feel as feminine as you've ever felt you do it unto the Lord, there's a reward for you. And when you are working for that boss who you could swear is Hitler reincarnated, <laughs> do it as unto the Lord because there's a reward there for you. Your actions matter. Not only that, look at this. Paul says in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade Men. See, one of the reasons our actions also matter on this side of heaven is because people are watching us. Don't forget, we're, we are often the only Bible people ever read. They look at how we treat them. And so if they read, oh, okay, okay, I'm supposed to read you to learn about God. Okay, so God's selfish, um, conceited, lazy, two-faced, or, no, God's generous, merciful, and patient. And, and righteous, he's good. See, our actions matter. Because the thing is, God says, or Paul says, we want to persuade men. And I want to say to anyone here who's visiting, I, unapolog- I, I, we are unapologetic about wanting to persuade you to know Jesus. We want to persuade you to know Jesus. We do. We do. If you are, are saying, you know, I've not really considered this stuff before, please, can we get you a Bible? Can we have a conversation with you? Can we chat with you? We're not going to like, pressurize you. We want to take the time to listen and answer questions. If you have intellectual hangups, why you can't trust the Scripture or why you don't know if this Jesus stuff is true or what about this or what about that, ask. Because we want to persuade you. We want to persuade you because heaven is real. So is hell. And Christ died so that nobody has to go there. Jesus says this, continuing in John chapter five. Most surely I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said there's a real resurrection. He's the one who brings it to pass. He's the one who judges whether or not we're good or bad. He is the standard of whether or not we're good or bad. And he calls us to trust him because, as he said earlier, if we hear his word, we believe in him, we have everlasting life. If you don't know the Jesus who made the first creation and is going to make the new creation, we really, really want to introduce you to him. He's amazing. He's worthy to be bowed down to and trusted and worshipped. I want to challenge you today if you don't know him to either investigate further or ask him to save you. Say, God, I need to be saved. I I need to be forgiven. I need to know you for who you are. Jesus died on that cross to pay for your sins so that I could be made a reality. And for those of you who know him, <sighs> heaven's real. I don't know if they have a commercial here, but there's a beer commercial in the States that says, the, the catch line is always, it doesn't get any better than this. And It's usually like beer and food, some remote location. I hope it gets better than that. No, I know it gets better than that because Jesus is alive. It gets way better than that. He is worthy to be trusted. Let's trust him as we walk. Amen?